Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. Revelation chapter 1. And uh, it probably feels like uh, trying to launch a space shuttle. It takes so much energy to get the thing off the launch pad. Uh, we will be in Revelation 1, 2, and 3 for a few weeks. We finish Revelation 1 tonight. We'll look at each of the seven churches a week at a time. And then once we get past that barrier, things speed up, okay? so. But tonight I want to talk to you about a vision of Christ. A vision of Christ. We're looking at Revelation, uh, the consummation of Christ's kingdom. To set this up, I couldn't help but think of a song that uh, probably many of you have heard. It was not only uh, a popular Christian song, it actually broke into mainstream. And you, I think in, I think in at the time they even actually played it on secular radio stations. And just about a year or two ago, they made the song into a movie. You might go, what song are you talking about? I can only imagine. Remember that? I can only imagine. Um, the lyrics go like this. I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. I can only imagine. And, and the song is about what will I say, what will I do when I see Jesus? Okay. And the chorus goes like this. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in all of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. If you were to have an encounter with a risen, living Christ, how do you think you'd react? Well, we're going to find out tonight in Revelation chapter 1, because it happened in John and what I want to say up front is, you know, John is an important figure in the New Testament. He was one of the original 12 disciples who became apostles. Uh, he was in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, okay? So he saw the extra things that the other nine did not. Uh, even on the night when Jesus was betrayed, and Jesus is looking at the, the disciples and says, surely one of you is going to but betray me and peter always inquisitive and curious he he leans over to john who's even closer to jesus than he is and he says ask him who it is and so john asked him who it was and he says it's the one that i hand this you know bread that i dip in the dish and he handed it to judas and anyway when you read john's gospel the gospel of john he refers to himself in the third person. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, John was tight with Jesus. You know, you, you, can, you could easily see John singing, what a friend we have in Jesus, right? Uh, but now that Jesus has risen from the dead, now that he has ascended to the Father, and now that John has gotten older and he has an encounter with the risen, glorified Christ, it's not buddy-buddy, okay? You're going to see how he responds. Look, if you will, in Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like the fine bronze as it's fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you've seen, what is and what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Wow. So when Jesus, when uh, John has an encounter with Jesus, he falls down like a dead man. This is, this, this is the same person that he walked with for three, three years, uh, and yet he's so much more because he's not only the Son of Man, he is the Son of God. So in this passage, we're going to look at it tonight. We see two things to try to keep it simple. Uh, one is John's commission. And then the second thing is John's vision of Christ. Let's look at each of those separately for a minute. John's commission. Uh, notice there it says, I, John, your brother and partner. Uh, notice that John didn't emphasize his authority as an apostle or even as a prophet. You know, when you read the New Testament letters that Paul wrote many times, he'll say, called to be an apostle, you know, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, so on and so forth. John uses a different approach. He doesn't even emphasize his authority. He doesn't even emphasize his relationship that he had with the earthly Christ for three years. Uh, he immediately begins his letter with an appeal to fellow believers as a brother and as a partner in Christ. That was his approach. Um, and notice he says, I, John, your brother and partner and then it says, partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus. Now, what in the world is he talking about? What are we partners in? Well, it's interesting when you compare translations, and I do like to compare translations. I'm using the Christian Standard Bible, in case you're wondering. And the Christian Standard, the CSB, says affliction, kingdom, and endurance. The King James says tribulation, kingdom, and patience. And the New American Standard, which I also like that translation as well. I was taught many years ago that the, the New American Standard Bible is probably the most literal Greek to English translation. Okay, And it says, tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance. Perseverance. Um, Patmos is a small island. Notice that uh, John says that he was on an island called Patmos. You can look that up on a map. It's, I think it's part of Greece. Uh, I was actually looking at their website the other night. Uh, you can go there. It's not easy to. I think you have to take a ferry to get there. Uh, it's become a destination. 
the more I looked at the website, I thought, yeah, forget the Holy Land. I want to go to Patmos sometime. That'd be cool, you know. But uh, anyway, Patmos is a small island off the west coast of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And the Romans used the island as a place for exile for prisoners. I think tradition says that they had a rock quarry there, and that's what the prisoners did. They had to work really hard. Um, John was in exile on this island because of, notice what he says there, he was on the island, verse 9, called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Okay, not only was uh, John obeying God's word, but he believed God's words, the testimony in God's word about Jesus. And he was sharing the testimony about Jesus with others. And so that's why he was put there. Just like Paul many times uh, in New Testament times, Paul would get uh, put in prison. He, he called it chains for Christ because he wasn't doing anything morally wrong, but he was preaching the name of Christ and people didn't want it and they'd stir up a riot. And the next thing you know, he would be put in chains. And he says, I'm in chains for Christ, but God's word is not chained. Well, here is John and he is exiled for Christ because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, Herschel Hobbes, I've got a quote. He said that Patmos is a rocky, sparsely settled island in the Aegean Sea, slightly southwest of Ephesus. The island is about 10 miles long and 5 miles wide, and though John was separated from his friends by miles of water, he was still one with them in spirit and suffering. And then another commentator said, uh, Christian experience has two sides, suffering and kingdom. The combination of suffering and kingdom calls for patient endurance and the exhortation to endure and remain faithful runs through revelation. Again, go back to, you see a lot of threes here. You know, when we read the first part of Revelation 1, uh, you have this uh, greeting to John and, and you can see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We talked about that, I think, last time in verse 4, John to the seven churches you know, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ. So you got this Trinity uh, greeting here. And now here you've got this three-part uh, thing that John mentions. He says, I'm your brother and partner in affliction or tribulation, kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus. Now that's interesting that he says that it's in Jesus because listen, if you know the Lord, if you love the Lord, if you're following the Lord, you can expect affliction or tribulation, kingdom and endurance. Now, don't take my word for it. Like I said, this thread runs through Revelation. Let me give you some verses to show you this thread. For instance, in Revelation 2, uh, verse 2 and 3, and that would be the letter to the church of Ephesus, uh, here's what the Lord says. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance okay that's one of those three words that's mentioned there in uh, verse 9 that you cannot tolerate evil people that you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and that you've found them to be liars i know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary and that was the church in ephesus and then in revelation 2 13 that is to the letter of the church in pergamum in Revelation 2.13, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, 
yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you where Satan lives. And so in this community in Pergamum, there was a believer that was martyred. He was killed because of his faith in Christ. And uh, he is commending the church there. He's saying, you're holding on to my name. You're not denying me, even though one of your own has, has um, died for their faith in Christ. In Revelation 2, 19, uh, that is the church, to, uh, the church in Thyatira. In Revelation 2, 19, again, notice what Jesus is saying to his church. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. Okay, now what am I doing? I'm, I'm going back to Revelation 1-9, those three qualities that we have in Jesus, affliction or tribulation, kingdom, and endurance. And I want you to see that that's part of the Christian experience because it's in Jesus. So there in Revelation 2.19, I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. And then in Revelation 3.10, and um, Revelation 3.10, the church in Philadelphia, uh, because you kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that's going to come on the whole earth. And we'll deal more with that when we get to that point in the Scripture. Revelation 6.11, in Revelation 6.11, uh, says uh, this uh, group was given a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. So there are your martyred saints, people that have died because of their faith in Jesus. And it says that there will be uh, more of them. Uh, Revelation 13.10. In Revelation 13.10, it says, If anyone is to be taken captive, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he'll be killed. This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. Who's he talking to? The saints, okay? And so, you know, when we live in this world and we encounter persecution, we are called to endure and to be faithful. And that's exactly what it's saying. In Revelation 14, verse 12, again it says, this calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. So obviously we're called to endure. In Revelation 16, verse 15, Jesus says, Look, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. So obviously, we want to be faithful uh, until Jesus comes. Um, in Revelation 18.4, uh, John says, Then I heard another voice from heaven, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins or receive any of her plagues. If we are going to be kingdom-minded people, if we are going to go through our share of suffering or tribulation or afflictions, if we're going to endure, then that means we have to live separated from the world. Uh, we've got to be different. We've got to be called out. Um, the application here is this. The theme of endurance is woven through Revelation because believers must be faithful despite persecution. There's no denying that this is the battle cry of the Bible. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, is the battle cry of the, of the Bible. It says, listen, we win because He's already won. 
But we're going to have to go through some things, and we can because He already has. He, he bore the cross, now He wears the crown. We may have to bear the cross, but we too will wear the crown. And so Revelation is a stirring, stirring book. Uh, to, 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 to put all this into perspective, I always uh, you know, like following different rules of interpretation. And, and one thing is this. Look at the human author. Uh, John the Apostle wrote Revelation. He also wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And when you think about what John has said about some of this stuff before, it really all fits quite nicely. For instance, in John 15, 20, and I know I'm throwing a lot of verses. We've got them on the screen. You can write the references down if you like. But in John 15, 20, John recorded something that Jesus said to the twelve. And here's what he said. This is Jesus talking. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they, keep, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. In John 16, the CSB, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I've conquered the world. Uh, the King James says, um, These things I've spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And I always think that's interesting. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I will, I will make you think about something as we study Revelation. When you read Revelation 2 and 3, the seven letters to the seven churches, there's one thing that he says to each and every single church. To him who overcomes. Okay? To him who overcomes. And the question becomes, overcomes what? And I will leave you hanging on that. We will look at that when we get there. But uh, Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know, I think uh, in America, we have honestly, we have been spoiled for so long because in other parts of the world, it costs something to be a Christian. Okay, it really, really does. I think we're now in a new era in our nation's history where it's going to start costing something to be a Christian in America. Uh, you sh you're probably seeing it right now. Just hang on to your hat. Get ready for it, okay? Uh, you're going to be characterized as, uh, you know, all kinds of things. I won't get into all that, but uh, it's, it's going to happen. And, um, and when you think about persecution, that's not anything that somebody wants to sign up for. None of us like the thought of it. But can I tell you what Jesus said about persecution? He said, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. That's, that applies to every follower of Jesus. The servant is not greater than the master. In Matthew 5, his Sermon on the Mount, look at what Jesus said about persecution. Not sure how you feel about it, but look at what Jesus said about it. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Okay, you might say, what did we do wrong? You didn't do anything wrong. You're being persecuted because of righteousness, verse 10. You're being persecuted because of Jesus, verse 11. You're, you're just living your life for Jesus. You're, you're not trying to beat a drum. 
You're not trying to uh, get on a crusade and beat somebody over the head with a Bible. You're not trying to you know, beat your chest and say, I'm better than you and here's why. You're not even looking for that. You're just trying to live your life for Jesus Christ. And because of righteousness, because of Jesus, you'll be insulted, you'll be persecuted, you'll be falsely accused and spoken of as evil. And he says in verse 12, Matthew 5, Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Two things there. Number one, don't be, don't be sad about it. Rejoice, because there's an, a reward attached to it. And number two, you're in line, and it's a long line. It goes all the way back to the prophets who were before you. Anybody who has been serious in their walk with Christ is going to be misunderstood by the world. Can I tell you, and we don't have time to go there, this is just a thought for you to think on for a minute. The more I study Revelation, the more I realize that as Christian, there is no neutral ground when it comes to the world. There, there's no neutral ground. There is a dual threat that the Christian has in the world. You know what that dual threat is? On one hand, it's seduction. What do I mean by that? We are seduced by the world to compromise, to, to join them, to do what they do. And we compromise our morality, we compromise our uh, purity, but more than that, we compromise our testimony in Jesus. If we... If we succeed in dodging that bullet, if we don't step in that trap being seduced by the world, then you know what happens? The other thing happens. Persecution by the world. Oh, well, who do you think you are? Do you think you're holier than thou? Do you think you're better than us? Da-da-da-da-da. Who, who died to make you king? And so uh, there's never any neutral ground with the world. You, you have to deal with the test and the temptations that come with being in the world. You're either going to be seduced to become more like the world and weaken your testimony, or you will be persecuted by the world because you stand in righteousness. You stand for Jesus. There is no middle ground. There's just not. Can't find any. In Christ, in Jesus... We are inheriting a kingdom. Notice it says that we're a partner in the affliction and the kingdom and the endurance that are in Jesus. Um, I had to emphasize the affliction, the tribulation part a little bit because as Western believers, particularly in America, we don't want to hear that, okay? I don't want to hear that, but we got to deal with it. Persecution is part of the package of being a Christian, but I don't want to get hung up on that because I want you to see the rest of this. And the rest of this is, we are part of a kingdom. We are partners in the kingdom. Remember there in verse 6 that He has made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father. If we're part of the kingdom of God, then we are part of that kingdom because we know the King. Christ is King. We are inheriting a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And therefore, we endure hardships, afflictions, tribulation, persecution, and whatever. And so the center of those three words, affliction, kingdom, and endurance, is kingdom. Because we're part of the kingdom of God, because we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we will put up with a whole lot of stuff and we will endure because He has gone before us. Okay? He has gone before us. Now, let's go on. Verse 10. 
John sets up this. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. What does that mean? Well, the Lord's day is the first day of the week, Sunday. Okay. Some people say, why do we worship on Sunday and not on Saturday? Aren't we supposed to keep the Sabbath? Well, listen, when Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, that ended up being the first day of the week, right? And we have been worshiping God on Sunday, on the first day of the week, every since to commemorate the ultimate game changer, that he rose from the dead. And so here it is, the first day of the week, the Lord's day, the day that he rose from the dead, and here is John in the Spirit, probably praying, probably meditating on Scripture, probably just worshiping the Lord. And then, wham, he has this encounter with the risen Christ. He says, I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. Before he saw anything, he heard something, a loud voice behind him like a trumpet. And here's what the voice said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. And I think I've got a visual for those of you here in the pews tonight. And that visual is a map of the seven churches of Revelation. And if you look at that uh, map, you can see all seven dots on the map. And the way they are laid out, it's very clear uh, why he addressed them in the order that he addressed them. Because if you were going to physically send a messenger, you would have started there on the coast of the Aegean Sea where Ephesus is. Then you would have went north to Smyrna and then Pergamos and then go east to Thyatira and then head south and southeast to uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. So you can see why he addressed them in the order or sequence that he did. Now, here is Jesus. That's what uh, John is about to find out. He's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He hears this loud voice like a trumpet. He's told to write what he sees on a scroll and send it to these seven churches that are mentioned by name. And then in verse 12, it says, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, he didn't see Jesus yet. I saw seven golden lampstands. You know how it is. If you hear something and it startles you or whatever, and you turn to see what it is, you tend to see the perhaps the, the context, the surroundings, before you zero in on something specific that's right there in front of your eyes. And so he turns around and he sees these seven um, golden lampstands. And then among the lampstands was one, as the Bible says, like the Son of Man. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm very visual. And so, uh, Devin, go ahead and show these. I found these on the internet. You can Google, if you like, uh, Vision of Christ in Revelation 1. Look at Google Images and you'll see all kinds of things. Uh, I, I'm kind of a visual learner. And so, look at those. Each one is trying to depict the same thing, and yet look how different the pictures are. Interesting, huh? Um, here's what I want you to realize. Don't get so caught up in the picture, uh, because the picture is loaded with meaning, and it's symbolic, and let's look at it. So, very quickly, let's do that. So, one like the Son of Man, okay? He's walking among the golden lampstands, which it's interpreted at the end of chapter 1. Those are the seven churches. 
And this one, like the Son of Man, has a robe and a golden sash. He has hair white as wool, eyes like fiery flame, feet like fine bronze, voice like the sound of many waters. He holds seven stars in his right hand, which is interpreted at the end of chapter 1 as the angels or messengers of the seven churches. He has a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Okay? That's good social distancing, right? Okay. Got to have a little bit of humor there, okay? And then face shining like the sun at full strength. Now, what does all this mean? You heard me share this, I guess, a couple weeks ago when we started Revelation, how uh, some of the things he says in verse 1, and now here again, link it to prophecies that God revealed to Daniel. And that's very important because what God has already revealed like 600 years or so prior to the prophet Daniel about what would happen in the last days and the end times, now he's linking that to what he's showing John, and you go, wow, here it is. Uh, Let me explain. In Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, Daniel is having these night visions. And look at what happens in Daniel 7, 13. Daniel writes, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man, Do you see the same phrase, same language? Yeah. He saw one like a son of man who was coming with the clouds of heaven. That's already been mentioned in Revelation 1 uh, earlier. Uh, He approached the Ancient of Days, which is a term for, for, for God, and was escorted before him. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Okay, we've been playing on the kingdom theme for a while now so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. The bottom line, Christ is that Son of Man. Okay, His robe and the golden sash point to His priestly work among the churches. Uh, I I discovered in um, Exodus 28 when God gave the um, garments to Moses, when he described how he wanted everything done, not just to hear the Ten Commandments, but he gave him a blueprint of the tabernacle that became the temple and how the sacrifices were to work, how the priesthood was to work, how everything was supposed to look and how everything was supposed to function. In Exodus 28, uh, 4, he says, These are the garments that they must make, a breast breast piece, uh, an ephod, a robe, a specially woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So out of all that, uh, all, out of all that clothing there, you have a robe and a sash. And they are to make holy garments for your brother Aaron and his sons so that they may serve me as priest. And so when you see this vision of Christ and part of his wardrobe is a robe and a sash, it reminds you of the priest. And here he is walking among, just like a priest in the temple would be walking among um, the candle there. Here is Jesus walking among his churches his priestly work he knows exactly what's going on in his churches his eyes like a fiery flame speak of his role of judgment and his feet like bronze represent purity uh, look if you will in revelation nineteen twelve. and like i said you can write these verses down uh, revelation nineteen twelve. his eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head and he had a name written that no one knows except himself That is a picture of Christ when He comes back at His second coming and His eyes are like a fiery flame, just like they are in the vision in Revelation 1. In Revelation 2, 
uh, to the church at Thyatira. Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. And he deals with um, false teaching. He deals with impurity in the church. And he uses it by going back to that vision of eyes like a fiery flame and feet like fine bronze. It speaks of his role as judge and his purity. Then, of course, his hair white like wool and his voice like the sound of many waters. That identifies Christ, quite frankly, as God. Let me explain. Go back to Daniel 7, and I go up a few verses. In Daniel 7, verse 9, that night vision that Daniel was having, in Daniel 7, verse 9, Daniel says, As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days, which refers to God the Father, took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool, and his throne was flaming fire, and its wheels were blazing fire. In Ezekiel, when he had a vision of, of, of God, he said he heard the sound uh, of torment like the noise of an army. Uh, and it was uh, like the roar of a huge uh, waterfall or torrent, like the voice of the Almighty. And so between Ezekiel and, Edan and Daniel, when you look at these two descriptions of hair white like wool and voice like the sound of many waters, that's linking Christ to be equal with God. Okay, It points to His divinity. And then, of course, the sword that comes from His mouth it's not a literal sword that comes from his mouth, okay? Like those pictures portrayed. That's why I wanted you to see the images. It's symbolic of the authority he has to judge. The authority he has to judge. Um, in Revelation 2.16, he tells the church to repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And that's to believers. And then in Revelation 19.15, a sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. So here he's using this sword that comes from his mouth. He speaks the word in judgment to the nations. Where does that come from? Isaiah 11.4, he will judge the poor righteously. He will execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth, and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Just like he spoke in creation, and there it was, when he comes to rule and reign, when he comes in judgment someday, he will speak with authority. And there it is. Okay? And so, when you look at uh, all of these qualities in this vision, they all point to who He really is. He is the priest. He is the judge. He is God, God's Son. He has the authority to do this, and His face shining like the sun at full strength just displays His glory. Okay, Who can, who can look at God and take it all in? It's quite amazing if you ask me. And so John fell at His feet like a dead man. And then Jesus laid His right hand on him and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. You don't realize it till you study this, but he is, again, claiming divinity. He is claiming to be equal with God because in the Old Testament in Isaiah, two or three times, God said, God the Father said, I am the first and the last. And here is the risen, glorified Christ, and he's saying, I am the first and the last. And when we think of God, 
we think of Him being forever and ever. And here is Jesus saying, I am alive forever and ever. Okay? So make no mistake on what Jesus is claiming. And you might say, does He have the right to do that? Does He have the right to think do that? Absolutely. Because He's the living one. He was dead, but look, He rose from the dead, and now He will be alive forever and ever. And as a result of His death, burial, and resurrection, what did He accomplish? He holds the keys of death and Hades. Herschel Hobbes says this, uh, what, what I just read there. He says, this speaks of the mystery of the incarnation, how God became man. But more practical for the moment was the fact that this one walked in the midst of his churches, sharing their sufferings and directing their work. The same, think about it, the same Roman Empire which persecuted them also nailed Jesus to the cross. Yet here he was, the living one into the ages of ages, in other words, forever and ever, and the empire could not destroy him and neither could it destroy his people, his church. Dennis Johnson said, The keys of death and the grave, now held by Jesus, the ever-living Son of Man, makes concrete the fact that His investiture with eternal dominion, shown to Daniel in the night visions, has occurred through His death and resurrection. Well, that's kind of big language. What is he talking about? Go back to Daniel 7. We read some verses a while ago in Daniel 7 where Daniel's having these night visions. And it's almost like he's seeing a heavenly court. And here is God the Father, the Ancient of Days, you know, uh, brilliant white with the white hair and the wool. And here comes one like a son of man. And what is bestowed on him? A kingdom. A kingdom that will last forever, that will never be destroyed and never end. And now John is saying, I'm hitching my wagon to that because Jesus came. He's the Son of Man. He's the Son of God. Through His death, burial, and resurrection, He has ascended to the Father. He's sitting at His right hand, and He's waiting for His enemies to be made a footstool for His feet. And one of these days, He's coming again. And so He wants you to realize, He wants you to realize that this Jesus, who was the son of a carpenter, but so much more, right? That He has the keys of death and the grave. And He's the ever-living Son of Man who lives forever and ever. And this just proves that now this kingdom is being ushered in. Okay, Jesus commanded John to write down what He saw. To write down what He saw. And the way that is written there, I don't think it's just this vision in chapter 1 but it's everything in the book of Revelation. Write down what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. Okay. Now there's different views on verse uh, 19 of Revelation 1.19. Some make that the key verse of the book, and they treat Revelation as if it's a chronological uh, order. They take this apocalyptic prophecy book, and they say there's chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. And, and what happened in chapter 1 happened before chapter 2. And that happened before chapter 3. And, and they, think, they think of it as linear. And they will say that, uh, 
the things you have seen is chapter 1. The things that is is chapters 2 and 3. And the things that will take place later is chapters 4 through 22. But when you read Revelation from beginning to end, it doesn't read like that. I've studied John's writing style, okay? When John writes, he's a unique guy. Uh, He's very complex, but he uses very simple language, and that's what makes it so profound. When you read the Gospel of John, uh, he says in chapter 20, I've written these things so that you might believe in the name of Jesus and you might have life. And in the Gospel of John are seven signs. Seven signs, right? Where Jesus turned the water to wine and all the other signs that point to He is the Son of God. And so as you read through the Gospel of John, you read it sequential, you read it linearly in order, and yet he keeps going around saying, there's a sign. He goes around again, there's another sign. Hey, did you catch it? Hey, there's another sign. Seven signs in the Gospel of John. When you read uh, 1 John, his epistle, 1 John, he wrote that letter, short five chapters, so that we might know that we have eternal life, so that we might be sure of our salvation. And he talks about darkness and light and love and hate and truth and deception. And he, he paints these black and white pictures, but then he weaves together this masterpiece and he keeps circling around almost in a spiral fashion. When you read Revelation, there's two main views on how you look at it and how you interpret it. Uh, many people look at it like we would a book. You start at page one, you go all the way through. We see it linearly, we see it uh, sequentially, and we try to make everything fit, you know, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, in, in order. And yet there, there's another view that looks at it where it's, uh, some people call it progressive parallelism, some people call it recapitulation, some people describe it, it's kind of like a pendulum. We focus on the first coming of Christ. We focus on the second coming of Christ. And as we go through Revelation, we're reminded of the first coming. We're looking forward to the second coming. And as we go through the book, each time we get a little bit more details, a little bit more ideas of that second coming until we get to the end and wham, wow, there it is. Okay? Uh, I'll be honest and say everybody that teaches this is going to teach it different. That's kind of the way... I lean. I'm not committed to it. I don't feel like I've got to defend it. I don't think that's the theory or anything like that. But when it comes to trying to explain things, I look at that and I go, that makes sense to me. Otherwise, when we get into Revelation deeper, you'll say, well, that happened here. A third of the world's already gone. And now it's this. Now, wait a minute. Did that happen first? Did this happen first? And you, 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 It's like you're trying to put these pieces of the puzzle together. Who's on first? What's on second? What happened next? And it gets real crazy. We'll deal with all that when we get there. But at any rate, he says, write what you have seen, which I believe is not just what we just read, the vision of Christ in chapter 1, but everything that follows. And then what is, how this speaks to that audience at that point in time, and what will take place. That's what I love about the Bible. Before you start grabbing your newspaper and say, hey, Brother Corey, what do you think the mark of the beast is? Okay. Some people will do that, right? I mean, it's sensational and we're curious and inquiring minds want to know. And as tempting as it is to look at the latest developments that are going on in America and the Middle East and all that, please don't forget that this is a book in the Bible. It was written by a human author 
to a human audience. It meant something to them, the recipients of this letter. What did it mean to them then, and what does it mean to us now? And so you can't, you can't get the cart before the horse. You have to look at this, uh, this Word of God and Revelation. What did it mean to them then, and then build the bridge to today. What does it mean to us now? Now, here's what I'll share. Another commentator says this. It's interesting to note that the four main sections of the book, the introduction, which is the first 18, I guess, verses, the letters, uh, starting with this vision in chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, all the way through chapters 2 and 3, the, the seven churches, and then the visions, which are found in the bulk of the book, chapters 4 through 22, verse 5, and then the conclusion of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 6 through 21, the very end there, they're all, all four of those sections of Revelation are introduced by allusions, references, innuendos, however you want to say it, allusions to Daniel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 and 45, which forms the introduction and the conclusion of Daniel's interpretation of the king's dream, that there are going to be four, four big kingdoms throughout history, and then there's going to be another kingdom. And when it comes, that's it. It's an eternal kingdom that will never end, that will never be destroyed. And John is saying this is it. So he's tying his wagging to that. Thus, the content of the dream in Daniel 2 provides a framework, if you will, by which to interpret Revelation as a portrayal of the end-time battle between good and evil and of the establishment of God's kingdom, all of which has begun with the death and resurrection of Christ and will be consummated at His final coming. Okay, One thing I can tell you is I want, to, I want to understand more about Revelation because I really see, first and foremost, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if we look at Revelation and we don't see Jesus, something's wrong. And so my number one goal, regardless of how we sort out the details and we will all have different views and that's okay i don't know of 10 people that you could put in a room and read this book and they would all walk out and say yep they might say it's about jesus and we win but on the details you'd have about 100 different views on the details okay but what i want you to realize the big picture is you gotta see jesus in revelation or you missed the whole point so let me give you something to think about before we end this teaching time the bottom line is, here is this revelation of Jesus. What was going on in John's life when he received this revelation from Jesus? He was a prisoner, okay? He was on an island in exile because of his obedience to the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He said it. And Jesus is walking among his churches, and he mentions seven churches particularly, and some of them are already being persecuted. One of them, Antipas, in one community, has already lost his life for the name above every name. Okay, And so the question becomes this, how do we thrive in the midst of a hostile world? I don't know about you, but I believe now we're living in a Babylon. Okay, We're, we're living in a country where there are more and more people that are illiterate about the Bible. If you start talking about basic stories... If they've never heard it, they don't know it. They have no connection to it. They don't understand it. It's like Daniel when he was in Babylon. How do we thrive in the midst of a hostile world? We overcome through the cross and the crown. 
John said, I, John, your brother and partner, in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Jesus bore the cross and he wore the crown. And you and I must do the same. We'll get deeper in this every week. We can't build Rome in a day. We will look at this every week as we go through it. And uh, my challenge to you tonight is simply this. Will you faithfully serve the king of the kingdom? Okay? Will you faithfully serve the king of the kingdom? Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. Thank you for this time in your word. Lord, I pray more than anything that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us. Lord, give us a vision of you exalted in all your glory because one of these days you're coming back. You came the first time to be our Savior who died on that cross for the sins of the world. But Lord, you're coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord, we long for that day. We pray for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.